From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. I thought, oh my God, if I get one second of this wrong, then the movie will fall apart and you won't feel like, you know, you'll be taken out of it and go, well, that's not what it's like. She doesn't know. Um, And so that was, again, I felt a massive responsibility to try and make it as, as authentic to what it's really like as possible. Since premiering at the Venice Film Festival in September, Pieces of a Woman has garnered a lot of buzz for Vanessa Kirby's fearless performance as Martha, a woman grieving the loss of her baby in childbirth. And there has also been a lot of talk surrounding the scene that depicts the birth, which was filmed in one 24-minute unbroken take as her character moves throughout her apartment, including in and out of the bathtub. I'm Janelle Riley. On this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Vanessa Kirby about Pieces of a Woman. Also in this episode, we sit down with Paul Racy to discuss his role in Oscar contender Sound of Metal. And the awards circuit roundtable breaks down the good and not so good latest additions to an ever-growing field of film awards contenders. It's all on the latest edition of Variety's Awards Circuit podcast. Stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Awards Circuit podcast. I'm Clayton Davis, your film awards editor here at Variety, joined today with Janelle Riley. I'm sick. I can't sound enthusiastic. Sorry. You look beautiful, though. I know. I look fantastic, but I feel (laughs) terrible. (laughs) That's the magic of Janelle Riley. Even though though she's like, oh, I know I look fantastic. I just feel like crap. Still bringing it. (laughs) Uh, Jess, NK. Hello. I'll be enthusiastic. I've been drinking way too much coffee, so I'll carry it for you, Janelle. (laughs) And Michael Schneider. Hello, Michael. Hello. I'll, I'll try to bring the enthusiasm as well. You know, oh, we feel like a Monday today. That's just all around. <laughs> well, to be fair, Clayton, democracy is is imploding all around us. So. Wait, what, what happened? Wait, everything's fine. Everything's great. We're good. Oh, We're wait. all good. We survived Wednesday, January the 6th. Oh, uh, the, day, the danger of pre-recording this is who knows what the world's going to look like by, by the day people actually listen to this. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway. This thing, the current time of recording, democracy is okay right now. When this thing on my head turns out to be deadly, you're all going to feel bad for making fun of me for, uh, for feeling so lousy today, for, for never, making light I, of I me. did not make fun of you. I said you looked great. <laughs> yeah. Stop Googling well, things, Janelle. <laughs> it's just WebMD. They we say I'm fine. We need some good news. We need uh, some good entertainment, Clayton. Gig excited. Uh, you know, we we've talked about some uh, not so great films on recent roundtables. Give me some good. Oh, good because the embargo's up. Judas and the Black Messiah. Yay! Directed mm. by Shaka King, co-written by Shaka, uh, Shaka King, along with Will Burson and the Lucas Brothers, and it's our Fred Hampton film, not the Fred Hampton biopic, let's be clear about that, Uh, stars Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya, and I think it is just superb cinema. Uh, I think it's going to make my top 10 of the year. I think it's great. What it does Oscar-wise, that's TBD, because, you know, Warner Brothers is Warner Brothers right now, but I think the film is fantastic. But I do believe, no matter what, bare minimum, I think Daniel Kaluuya is a possible gold statue winner at the end of the season. 
Absolutely. He's fantastic. Yes. I, listen to me. I, I can actually be enthusiastic about it. Yeah, look, she also has to come up Happy yeah. to talk about a great movie. Um, Lakeith Stanfield, that, he just, uh, oh. by the way, former Variety 10 actor to watch, um, as is Daniel, come to think of it. Um, oh, yeah. And Fishback, who was on the list this year, just this cast from top to bottom is fantastic. A variety casted this film, in other words. I know. Had <laughs> <laughs> on variety, make good movies. Yes. Um, can, can I can I but, ask you, Janelle? I was going to be for everyone, but I'll ask you, Janelle. Do you think where do you fall on Daniel Kaluuya's category placement? Because actually, I kind of think it's either or. I think she, I agree. I don't rather. think I don't think it's category fraud. I think okay. in many, I think he is such a powerful presence. It feels like a lead role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Break down the screen time, and it, it is it is very much also the story of William O'Neill, the the yeah. person that um, Lakeith Stanfield plays, who infiltrated the Black Panthers, and you know um, was was sent in to to bring them down. Um, so I, I I actually think it's the appropriate category placement. I would actually like to see it again, though. Just to, like I wouldn't have argued if they had put him lead, but I, I feel like supporting feels it's correct. fine. Yeah, yeah. All right, jazz. Yeah. Phenomenal performances. Phenomenal, like you said. I mean, it's definitely going to be in my top 10 of the year. And I have to give Charlize Antoinette Jones a shout out for her costumes. Phenomenal. Incredible. Um, But yeah, Daniel is superb. And Lakeith, I mean, come on, what a a career he's having, he's had. I feel feel so... I feel so bad for Lakeith because he's so good. I know he just like muscling into that lead actor race is too much of a mountain to climb right now, but it is not, that is not to say he's not worthy of it. Cause I think he's really great. I you were out. I wouldn't. Yeah. It's just, I just feel like so many things are up in the air right now. Don't you give me hope in this time of, <laughs> of peril. Sorry. I'll go back to being negative. Yeah. I, retract, I, retract. I was, Sorry, I was going to say you were raving about it from the first time you saw it because you saw it before everybody else did. And I was like, okay, we'll see. We'll see. And you were so on the ball with the raving for this film because it deserves everything. Yeah. Uh, My favorite technical aspect is Sean Bobbitt. The cinematography, I think, is so gorgeous. There is a shot. I mean, I wrote about about it for you, Jazz, and your artisans. There's a shot from a gas pedal. Uh, that is like I like and is and he has a kind of almost a pan around thing that he does again uh, around a car that he did in Widows that were like he's just like I can't believe this guy's not gotten nominated yet. If there's anything, please Academy make sure Sean Bobbitt gets his due this year. I don't know how you shoot Twelve Years a Slave and not get an Oscar nomination. Let's just what? put that out. Yeah, yeah, that's Sean yep. Bobbitt. This uh, year, this year is his this year. This year, I'm feeling it. And I am so impressed by Shaka King, whose work I was not really familiar with. I know he previously made... One movie, newly made. And um, from what I understand, very different tone. Um, (laughs) The movie is so accomplished and confident and and just so well done. Yeah. Also, former student of Spike Lee, along with Chloe Zhao, they were uh, mates together. Oh, wow. Film school. Oh, wow. And look at him now. Potential. Take, and taking on dad at the Oscars, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coming together. There's, there's some drama. I love it. I love it. Um, Clayton, you mentioned, uh, to, to, to clarify, that it's not, don't call it a biopic of Fred Hampton. Um, yeah. Talk about yeah. the distinction there. Yeah, so I think that's what's going to, that's good. That's probably its biggest hindrance in the audience 
regular people's fear as I think people are going to expect the Fran Hampton story that tells you about like his upcoming, his upbringing and everything like that. And it's not that it picks up. It starts with Bill O'Neill getting arrested, you know, by, you know, the FBI and then getting sent into, and then it ends where it ends. So it's not, it's not uh, a bio, it's not your conventional biopic. Right. Uh, more in the vein of assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah, so I, a very specific moment in time, which yeah. is fertile enough for an entire film. Yeah, and I actually always prefer when real life stories are about a moment in time. I think when you yeah. try to tell somebody's whole life story, but yeah. it's got to be a mini series at that point. So it's another one of the reasons I think this film works so well. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm very excited about that. Now tell me something that I shouldn't look forward to, Clayton. Oh, next one is, uh, <laughs> I mean, this this brings you into the conversation a little bit. I think you're a big fan of Euphoria. Emmy winner Zendaya. Oh, uh, love Zendaya. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think we're about to be adding an Academy Award nominee Zendaya, maybe, to the okay. mix. Yeah, she's uh, having a good Malcolm and So let, let's just, uh, from a quality standpoint, uh, it's a it's an actor showcase. Her and John David Washington, which uh, you will you the interviews on the site already. You can go to variety.com and see. Uh, it's up before this. Um, it, they, it's an actor showcase. They are fantastic. They their their charisma. Their oh my oh, god, mm-hmm. they're like their chemistry is. In, I don't know if you yeah. saw. It, it melted my TV. Yeah, like they're, <laughs> they're they're too good looking for their own good. I hate them both. <laughs> Like they're just they're just fantastic. Um, but yeah, like I think it's the best work John David Washington's done yet. And I think so. and and, and, and I think it's Zendaya's stake in the ground of like I am a serious actress. You should give me more roles to explore that. Um, and I, I think it's great. Now, what it does outside of the acting races that is what seems to be divided uh, in the Twitter sphere and the social media standpoint. But it is a movie about making movies, and Oscars love that. But I will say, cinematography-wise, beautiful. Beautiful camera work. Um, But what it does beyond that is the thing. So I'll just say this one last thing, and I'll let everyone else go. Zendaya and John David Washington are also producers. So if they get nominated for Best Picture and they got nominated for Acting, Zendaya would be the youngest female producer nominee ever i i actually think she's the youngest producer ever period in that in that uh space uh she would also be the first woman to be nominated for acting and producing in the same year francis mcdormand is about to break through that first also so it'll be interesting how that works and john david washington would be the second black man to do it following his father for wow. fences wow who Love it. he could ostensibly be nominated against this year as both our lead actors. They would be the first father-son combo to be not, because he's also a producer in, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. They'd be the first father-son to be nominated alongside each other, ever. In lead actor? Or uh, no, in best picture. Oh, okay. And oh, and actor, too, yeah. Because there's only been two uh, families, uh, the Fondas on, Gold, on Golden Pond and something else that's escaping me at the moment. But... Your thoughts, Janelle and Jazz, on Malcolm and Marie? I'll be brief because my computer is dying. And, and as I've mentioned, I, 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 I don't feel so great myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. It's an amazing actor showcase. Zendaya obviously deserves all the love she's getting. But I 
was really blown away by John David Washington mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I feel like she's getting a lot of the buzz right now, but like it, it falls apart without either of those performances perfectly yeah. calibrated. And I, I just think they're both excellent. Jess. I am obsessed with Sam Levinson's camera work, the way he shot that movie, the way he captured that dynamic and there is no hotter couple on screen this year than Zendaya and John David Washington. Their chemistry is insane. I'm sorry, Janelle, your TV. Well, it, like, it, that's until, the warning. Until Tom and Jerry comes. But no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Hey, look, my, it, my TV had a coming soon. Worthy sacrifice. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Um, and the music. Lab, Labyrinth oh, yeah. the music. And John Lennon is the super music supervisor. Incredible. Everything all around. Yeah, soundtrack is super dope. Super. And then we move on, Mike. <laughs> to the right, United so, States versus Billy Holiday. Oh, so say it ain't so. How great is that, Andrew Day? Oh, that Andrew Day. She, listen, Andrew Day is committed. Phenomenal. She's Phenomenal. committed. He, yeah. She goes for it. I, I was talking about this with Janelle before recording. I cannot rec- so we in Oscar history we see people that are able to overcome the bad reviews of a movie. We see Meryl Streep do it for The Iron Lady. Black actress nominees, black actresses period and lead and supporting. I've, I can't find an example of someone who made it into an Oscar lineup where their movie is going to be as panned as I think this movie is about to be. Yeah. So what is oh. it? What, what's what's the problem with the film? Uh, I, for me, it's editing. E- editing is the number one problem. Like in the opening number, I was it, I was it was jarring, and I was like, oh my god, what happened? Like there's like there's transitions that I don't understand, and I can't tell you what really the movie's about in the end. Like I can't give you like a play by play of facts. And I think, I don't know if that's just me. Anyone else can chime in there. Well, I, mean, I, mean, I can't, be, it can't just be me. I, I wasn't sure in the end. It centers around this. It's obviously based on a true story, the FBI witch hunt against Billie Holiday and, and strange fruit. But like, yeah, like Clayton said, the editing is just, it's not theme. It's not a, a seamless story. Like it goes back and forth and you're like, wait, what just happened? And then there's a love scene later on. And by the time that happens, I didn't even care if they got together because I didn't feel their chemistry. Like, I didn't care for them. I was like, oh, okay. Cool. I couldn't tell you why he fell in love with her. I don't know the moment That's it happened. Yeah. Oh, by the way, was- shout out to Trevante Rhodes. Like, don't ever allow this to be the reason you don't give him more movie roles. He deserves all movie roles. This is just not... <laughs> Uh, it didn't afford him a good uh, outlet. The Janelle. performances are brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to blame the actors. Do you? Yeah. No. Yeah. But, I mean, is it a direction problem? Is it a script problem or a little both? Yep, that's it. Yep, that, that's how it says it all. All right. Uh, and uh, lastly is... God, I just lost off the top of my head. What are we talking about? What, I guess what, what remains to be seen. Oh, Cherry. Yeah. Oh, yes, Cherry. Yeah, Cherry, Tom Holland. Uh, nice nice go at it. Um, an adult role. 
I think the I think there was a good movie somewhere in there. He's think, always good. And and yeah. actually, I want to give it a, sh- a shout out to Sierra Bravo, who's his co-star. Like, I think she's going to be huge. I think, yeah. you know, uh, the the depth and the complexity she gets to show, she's she's pretty much right there alongside Tom, Tom and all of the scenes and has this amazing character arc. And, you know, I, I would recommend seeing it for them at least. I yeah. think they're both, you know, great actors that uh, that do a really good job. Yeah, and, and just add because we're gonna have the Russo brothers on this week. I don't think necessarily they're. I think they have a really good vision of what story they kind of wanted, what they wanted to tell. I just think, like we were saying before, Mike, about a slice of life, like not going the whole way. This is based based off a true story, and you know they go before he goes to war, then they have him at war, and then they have him as a drug addict, and then they have him uh, robbing banks, and there's just too much to cover. And then the biggest problem I have there is just a pet peeve of mine. Tom Holland still looks young. You can't put a mustache on Tom Holland and tell me that he's that 20 years have passed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fly. Okay, but I do think this is what Tom Holland is going to look like in 20 years. I have a feeling he's going to be like... Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Paul, I was about to say Paul Rudd. He is total, uh, total Paul Rudd. True. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't even follow up with that. Yeah. Fine, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Well, maybe movie, something you guys look forward to uh, coming through the pike. Uh, besides Billy Holiday on twenty six, Tom and Jerry, <laughs> the aforementioned Tom and Jerry. Yep, looking that to make really uh, be, that can't really be an animated contender. Can it, it? Well, well, no, it's not. It's, I don't think it's going to count because it's it's live action and okay. It's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, oh I didn't realize that. Yep. We have uh, Land with Robin Wright that's premiering at Sundance, her directorial debut. They're going to join the female director conversation this year. Uh, The Little Things with Denzel and Jared uh, Leto. And Robin Wright, three Oscar about, And we should keep an eye on. And Palmer uh, with Justin Timberlake. Yes. Which also we have thoughts on, and they're good ones. You should. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it when we can. I love. Let me Justin Timberlake. We have the Mars. Mar- oh my God, I can't talk today. The Mauritanian. Mauritanian, February nineteenth. Oh. Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. I did a write up on that. It's. I think it's great. I think the performances are great. I think it's it's such a timely story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's no great shock to hear that Jodie Foster is amazing, and I could definitely see her breaking into this race. Yeah, Tahar Rahim. I wish there was oh, room for so him too. Lead actors are so stacked this year, and we're going to get such a diverse lead uh, lead actor lineup. Like, you know, I know people uh, in the Twitter sphere and other outlets are screaming about wokeism and all that, but I think we're going to have, like, one white guy in the race, and it's not, like, a forced thing. I think we just have an abundance of riches of people of color this year that's going to be amazing to watch unfold. So, uh, you know, that doesn't take anything away from Anthony Hopkins, who, who also gives his best performance in The oh. Father, which I guess technically is a latecomer too, right? Because that's not out yet. Yep. And French yeah, Exit. premiered at Sundance a year ago. <laughs> and French Exit, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yep. That all keeps coming. So. Uh, Mike, what's, uh, what's good on TV? <laughs> well, you know, the thing we're talking about this week at TV is, of course, the uh, Sex and the City reboot without Kim Cattrall. Oh, um, yeah. So mm-hmm. billion dollars an episode. 
it's it's pretty crazy. But what what is that show without Kim Cattrall? And 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 actually, uh, Carolyn Framke, our uh, one of our TV critics, uh, just wrote a piece about that. Sort of how do you do this show without that necessary ingredient? Um, you know, funny enough, when Sex and the City went into syndication on regular TV, you know, they had to cut out most of the Samantha parts because that was that was the part that was a little too premium for yeah. broadcast cable. So we actually got a chance to see what Sex in the City looked like really without Kim Cattrall and without Samantha. And it was not it was not the show. It was not the same show. So 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 can I ask you true or false right now? They kill her off or she's just not there? Oh yeah, I don't think they kill her off. I, I think she's either. just not there. Because no. they you have there? to keep the door open just in case when they realize Oh, we need Kim Cattrall on the show, and they have to negotiate bringing her back. And and sorry, uh, but uh, uh, to, to to the other three women, but you're going to have to deal with uh, Miss Cattrall. Can we do um, a, a variety award circuit version of Sex in the City with the four of us? Oh, I'm such a Miranda. <laughs> I was going to have... say we should be the Golden Girls, but that's... <laughs> I want to be a Selgeti. <laughs> I want Dorothy, but I like everybody wants Dorothy. Yeah. Bye, and I'll take Rose. Okay. Um, <laughs> that but I use McClanahan. Like, yeah, I could also, also outlive all of us, so that's good. <laughs> I could not be further from Blanche, but okay, why not? Bye. Bye. <laughs> that would be like Golden Girls without Blanche. By the way, you couldn't do a Golden Girls reboot without Blanche, right? I mean, that's oh yeah. How uh, far are we from a Golden Girls reboot? Seriously. I've been like, wondering this. Like, yeah. I'd say less than a year. Well, yeah, it's it's funny. Like, why haven't they done some sort of remake with four modern, like, famous uh, women oh, of a certain age? Yu Jung Yoon in Golden Girls. I mean, you could cast this thing. Like, this is that would be amazing. So, and Ellen Burstyn. Actress nominees into the mix. Glenn Close, Yu Jung Yoon. Uh, Ellen Burstyn and Maria Bakalova for fun. And Maria Bakalova just for kicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but aged up, like aged forty years oh, <laughs> to be God. like. Remember how Estelle Getty was actually the youngest, yeah, actor, yeah. like yeah. of all of them, but they aged her up by putting that wig on. Same thing. It is um, my but, favorite fact. You know how they take this idea, by the way, and it's going to be like on a video. To campaign well, for the we, we have we have the proof right here. Yeah. This is it. This is how we well, collect the world. Let's take it a step further. You know how they're doing the dramatic version of Fresh Prince, right? And it's just called Bel Air. Why don't they do a dramatic version of Golden Girls, like an hour-long series based Ooh. on Golden Girls? Ooh. But it's a little, it's a little more premium. It's a little it might be heavier, it's a little might darker, be but but they're still eating yeah. cheesecake in the middle. I don't know. It's, Can I? Can I just say something? Did you, did you all hear the variety shout out in Malcolm and Marie? Like yes. When yes. Yeah. Okay. It was amazing. <laughs> they mentioned variety, and, and I was really, I started looking up to see if there was a real critic at the LA Times that they were talking about, but I think that could be a and what they call that like an a, a mixture of people. Fusion well, the how LA critics know how the New York critics felt in Birdman. Ooh, <laughs> nice. I like it. Mike, what's the last movie yeah. you saw? Last movie I saw was Soul. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, last movie I saw was Wonder Woman 84. <laughs> <laughs> Which I watched even after you all warned me about it, but that's why I did watch it. And, oh, I have questions. I have many, <laughs> many questions. 
Um, oh, actually, I was I was going to email all of you my questions. Like I just I don't understand the choices. How oh, midway through the movie they decided to just even drop the 1984 of it all. Yeah. Let's just let's I'll, not I'll, even bother I'll, I'll anymore. Love again, Michael. <laughs> There's so many questions, but anyway, on that note, let's get to this week's episode. Yay! It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Janelle Riley. Vanessa Kirby is best known to audiences for her work on the first two seasons of The Crown as Princess Margaret, opposite Claire Foy, who plays Queen Elizabeth II. You've also seen her in films like Hobbs and Shaw and Mission Impossible Fallout. Now she's the star of Pieces of a Woman. And I can't bring her back. 60 to 70% of these cases, we rarely find a satisfactory explanation. Certain things medically we just don't have answers for. Very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Have you decided to go to the trial? That's the right thing to do, honey. Because you say it is. She has to pay for her incompetence. We need some justice here. No, you need. Why are you trying to disappear my kid? Because we don't have a kid. You have to face this. I am facing this. I am facing it. What they think. This is about me. This is about my life. This is me. The film is directed by Cornell Mandrusco from a screenplay by Kata Weber. The two are partners, and knowing the story was intensely personal to them, Kirby admits she felt an extra responsibility to get it right. She spoke to many women who had lost their children at different stages of pregnancy and said she literally could not have done it without them. Kirby spoke to Variety's Award Circuit podcast about her work in Pieces of a Woman, as well as in The World to Come, which also premiered at the Venice Film Festival and is playing the Sundance Film Festival this month. Kirby talked about her journey as an actor, having a pajama party with co-star Ellen Burstyn, and her upcoming projects, including more Mission Impossible films. We began by discussing how she began her career in the theater. When I started, I think... I only imagine myself being on stage because I have no experience whatsoever, you know, whereas I'd done a lot of plays when I was small and through school. And then at uni, I did loads of plays with all my friends, which is an amazing place to learn, actually, because it really gave you, I realised what those three years at university gave me was total permission to fail. And my God, I did. (laughs) I was terrible in some things, I'm sure. Um, You know, we did a four hour um, rendition of Morning Becomes Electra which I saw Helen Mirren do at, at the National. And um, I don't know why we thought it was a good idea to make, you know, a couple of parents and a few students sit through that. Um, and so then when I sort of started in theatre, it felt way more my natural habitat. And my very first screen job, I was totally terrified. Every minute of it, I, I was um, a rabbit in headlights, really. I, I'd never understood, I'd never really thought about the concept of having to stay in the frame, you know, uh, bring your performance in a little bit <laughs> you don't have to communicate to the last per you know the person at the back of the stalls at the theater and and I still feel like I'm learning so much and I have so much to learn I feel I feel actually um oh, I don't know what the word is I yeah I'm still at the beginning of my learning of it I, I feel what was your first job in front of the camera and because they don't they don't maybe they do there but 
Um, I've talked to so many actors who are like, they don't teach you at school how to hit a mark, how to, no. you know, bring a performance down in front of a camera as opposed to stage. What, what was it like? They don't teach you that. And it's something that I wish I sort of knew and I had to learn really quickly. I found every class that I possibly could after that job because I felt so experienced and I couldn't really focus on the acting very well because I was suddenly like, oh, what's that mark on the floor that someone's putting down? And also the the form of it in the sense that you might do a 30 second moment in a scene and then cut and then someone's fiddling with your costume and taking you out the moment. Whereas all I'd ever known is three hours nonstop where, you know, you had no no one was coming into the space and you just had to do it, you know. So it took me a really long time. And I was I was really terrified in that job. And I remember my first scene was sitting with Ben Whishaw, who I'd always admired. And I see him play, I saw him play Hamlet three times, Hank's house. And it was the most um, amazing performance I'd ever seen. So I was already pretty starstruck and very trembly and trying to remember my lines and uh, act, um, as well as try and get my head around all the different things that you have to take into account and, and know. And it was only really on the crown where I finally felt like, okay, I understand this space. I know what's needed. I, I felt I felt more confident really in being able to navigate it without without letting it affect me so much. I mean, The Crown was obviously a huge turning point in your career uh, and you started with the very first season. Did you have any idea like how iconic that show would become? No idea <laughs> at all. In fact, you know, I remember we had a we had a little Netflix dinner and Ted was there who I love. Um, I love them all, actually. They're such random people. Um, yes. Oh, okay. So they'd flown over and we were going out, you know, they took us out for a little dinner and, and they'd just done House of Cards at that point. That was their first series and The Crown was really their second one. And um, I said to him, oh my God, wow, like Netflix is doing so well. And he said something like, well, you know, we used to be a company that just sent out a scratch copy of Finding Nemo, you know? And, um, and so we all kind of, we, it was an unknown thing, really. I remember Peter Morgan going, I don't, if it all lands on one day, are people going to stop watching it? Are they going to get bored? Are they going to turn it off? Are they, you know, even episodic television wasn't, um, was still the, the thing in those days, really. Um, and so we were filming it. And then we started filming the second season before the first one had come out. So we were halfway through the second when it came out. And it, that was kind of scary because we just thought, oh no, if everyone hates it and we're hot, you know, and then we'd had this, it was, there was an innocence about it because I really thought my mum would like it. My granny might fall asleep um, and I'd be happy with that, you know. Uh, so that when it came out and suddenly it was getting this, this such warm, lovely response, I think we were all really blown away. And then when Claire, she brought her, her Golden Globe to the set, you know, and we were all just like, just it was just so surreal the crew and it really felt like one family and I was so proud of her in a way it's nice that you were already at work on the second season and had the scripts written before people saw the first season because I think sometimes that can you know writers can't help but sort of respond to what they're hearing people like or don't like yeah you're so you're so right and again it was that that sort of beautiful innocence really we all knew that the best thing about it was we just loved making it and I was so lucky to be able to play someone as vivid and complicated and um technicolor as as Margaret and that was always enough for me you know I really I when you have that feeling and I had the same with pieces actually when there's a sort of 
such a joy and a sort of purity in making something. It makes it easier to, to dis- detach from outcome and whether anyone would like it, see it, respond, be bored, you know, any of those things. And um, and I think it helped that, yeah, I, I, I felt so privileged to play someone as fun as she was. It's interesting because, you know, they are cha- they change the cast of The Crown every two years. Um, when did you find out Helena Bonham Carter was going to be taking over? And, and did you ever have any conversations with her? I, 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 did, I have this idea that England is so small, like all the great actors hang out together on the weekends or something. We, we don't do that, but we definitely <laughs> text a little bit. Um, I found out she was playing her because I was doing a screening of um, a couple of the Margaret episodes for a charity, Warchild, I worked with for a long time. Kerry Mulligan actually works with them too, with both ambassadors. So nice doing that with her. And um, so I was doing that in aid of that. And um, and Peter came up to me and whispered, she, he went, the new Margaret's here. And I saw her in the third row and I was like, oh my God, that's how I found out. Um, and so it was a really beautiful moment and I waved at her and then, you know, we shared a lot together and she, you know, I was, I was really um, so uh, happy. It was someone as incredible as her and it felt, it felt so beautiful to pass it on and to share our love of that, of that person, that real person and that character. And then you go from something like The Crown to blockbusters like Mission Impossible, Hobbs and Shaw, and now you're doing Pieces of a Woman, which is, it is, such a powerful, intimate drama. I, I, I hesitate to say small because I don't mean small in scale. I, I mean intimate. You know, this just feels like such a deeply personal but universal story. Um, I'm curious, how did the script find its way to you? And would it, when, when someone sends you a script, do they tell you in advance, like, this is what it's about? Or do you just go into it reading it blind? Depends. A lot of the time you get a little breakdown of what the rough you know, subject is or what what the director might want you to know about it. But this was a, a very kind of serendipitous, um, a, a bit like The Crown. I had a similar kind of moment. And I often think that things that are meant for you find you somehow, you know. I definitely feel like that with this one. Um, I, I'd spent a long time playing like small parts and supporting roles. And I knew that that was my journey because I just had so much to learn. And I, every time I watch someone play a lead and watch how they did it, you know, I learned so much. I learned my own way, you know, by, by watching all these different actors do it. Like Anthony Hopkins, I had a little part, something like that. And I just sat on his floor in his dressing room and asked him a million questions. And, you know, um, I, there's been many people that I've so admired and learned so much from. And so with pieces, I felt ready to do a lead, you know, I, I really did. I, I suddenly thought, I think it's my time now. I think I feel um ready to do it knowing what that responsibility was and not underestimating it and I was in LA doing some press and um I had a meeting with Sam Levinson and he was in the edit before Euphoria had come out he was just doing the final editing of season one and I went to meet him at the edit suite had an hour or two and we sat in this little room um in the in his edit suite and we chatted about films and about what we loved in life and um, I adored him and I, I said something like you know Gina Rollins is my big hero and always has been and I'm looking for something like uh, a woman under the influence or something that's the equivalent nowadays of pushing I guess the boundaries of how we see or portray women on screen you know like she did and it's the equivalent I guess of what she did then with women under the influence which was this deeply flawed, deeply complicated anti-heroine, you know, who 
is messy and um, struggling and yet formidable and such a strong energy. And Cassavetti is obviously loved so much and just allowed her to be so free and kind of untamed and also um, unmovie-ish. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like not edited to be a version of a woman that that fits into a film version, which might be, you know, yeah, any version of a woman that that's maybe uh, more comfortable to watch or, you know. Um, and so I was discussing it with him. And then I said goodbye and I left. And then I met some of, by chance, complete chance, my next meeting was with some of the Bron guys. And it was with Aaron Gilbert, who's wonderful, and Ashley Levinson. And of course, as soon as I sat down, I went, oh, yeah, you're Sam's wife. We were talking about you. And anyway, we chatted about the same things. And I said, my big passion is trying to find these kind of parts now. And and she texts Sam under the table and they both text each other apparently at the same time saying, what about pieces of a woman for her? Wow. And that evening they sent it to me and I read it in an hour. I just couldn't, I just couldn't stop. I just read it. And I was so deeply moved by it. I just, I replied instantly and said, I didn't know what it, what it was about, you know? So I was totally struck that there was the courage to put a birth for that many pages on screen and also to tackle a subject which is so rarely spoken about in society let alone you know put put to film um and I replied straight away and said I love this I so want to do it I met the wonderful Karen Turin and then the next afternoon I was on a plane to London and then Budapest to meet Cornell and Kata just to be able to tell them in person how much I loved it and how much it meant to me and um I didn't want to do it on a phone call with Cornell, you know, I didn't want to say, Oh, hello. I'd love to do your movie. And you know, when should, when should we start? I wanted to be in, sit in front of him and talk to him about Martha and why I was so moved by it and um, what it would mean to me. And um, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. And my understanding is Cornell is directing from a screenplay by Katya uh, Weber um, uh, and their partners and this this is a very personal story for both of them. I mean, did that did that weigh heavily on you as well? Because obviously you want to get it right, but you know, when it's such a personal story to the filmmakers, you really want to get it right. Oh, so true. I mean, it was a it was a it was something that was both um a responsibility to carry and bear, as well as um gave this kind of much bigger purpose than just your one role in it or you know and, and it felt like such a communal intention you know the sound guys the crew in Montreal were amazing everyone had this sort of shared aim of um of or shared holding in a way of of not just their story but also all the women that I spent time with many many days with different women who had been through this and lost babies at every stage of pregnancy or just after one in particular I spent a really long time with and I carried her story in my literally inside me the whole time and I could not have done it without them uh, and the whole time all I thought was I just want to do justice to their experience to their sharing of what that female experience and that very human experience of losing something at that like that and that level of grief and then you know beyond that I've I've since felt so connected to anyone who's going through a really difficult time and it was obviously I'm just acting it and I couldn't even pretend that to know what the actual reality of experiencing anything like that is but I tried as hard as I could to understand because you know it's 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 uh it's a lonely road 
and it's also you know yeah as I said experience you have to go through alone where the days kind of feel like time changes you know that's what they kept sharing with me like it feels like an eternity like some days just feel so long and others merge into others and the world is just continuing on around you you know and you're just making your way through every hour as best you can and um you know especially this year I think we've all everyone's been through a big collective you know loss collective grieving and um I feel yeah didn't even I wasn't I went off on the tangent there but I really I'm you know you really made me um yeah articulate I guess the that when you when it's not just Katja and Cornell's story but many that haven't been able to speak about it or don't really have a voice because society finds it really hard it it every day felt like a, a bit of an honor really to sort of mm-hmm. turn up and try and yeah do justice to something that's so rarely expressed <laughs> that makes any sense there's been uh, a lot of talk uh the the film the start of the film there's this almost 30 minute birthing scene that is done in one take and it's just it's it's simply phenomenal and um I think the important thing is, is that I didn't even realize it was done in one take because you're so invested in the moment and it's not, it's not a gimmick. It's done that way for a reason and you're, and you're in the moment, but on one hand, I feel that that would be really scary and intimidating. On the other hand, um, having that theater background, you're used to running things through. Um, Was it almost kind of a relief to just be able to do the whole scene over and over again, as opposed to stopping and starting? Total relief—that's the perfect word. And I, some people are kind of surprised when I describe it like that because they think that it would be scarier. But honestly, truthfully, it's not because I was definitely more afraid of the idea of breaking for lunch, coming back, having to go into the bath and try and get myself to a level, you know, that she might be at. And I was really my my biggest fear was that it would at any point feel phony because. I thought a lot about kind of saving Private Ryan, you know, and I and how you really feel like you're with them in that trauma. And I really wanted the birth to be a bit like that. And I and then I thought, okay, well, this is even scarier because so many women have been through it and know what it's like. I haven't. And so many men have watched women do it and been by their side. And I thought, oh, my God, if I get one second of this wrong, then the movie will fall apart and you won't feel like, you know, you'll be taken out of it and go, well, that's not what it's like. She doesn't know. Um, And so that was, uh, again, I felt a massive responsibility to to try and make it as as authentic to what it's really like as possible Mm -hmm. for women generally. Um, And because I, I knew that, yeah, if you were taken out of it, I, I you, Martha, after that point, is finds it so impossible to articulate or express anything that's going on inside it because it's just too painful. And um, so, in a way, I, I felt like you had to feel what Martha was feeling in the birth and and afterwards, so that you could the viewer, in a way, would be the one, ones closest to her when when the rest of the people in her life are going through different things and projecting things onto her and needing her to be a certain way. At the same time, when you're doing something that you know is going to be an almost 30 minute take, um, are you, you're, you're probably still in the moment, you're not thinking about these things, but is there a part of you that is like, I don't want to like flub a line at the very last second and ruin the entire take? Yeah, 
I mean, that definitely crosses your mind before filming. Like the, the, the scariest moment is just before action because it's almost like going down a roller coaster and having to put your arms up and just go, oh God, I know the drop's coming and I just have to go with it and surrender. I, I had this incredible privilege of um, spending many days on a labour ward and um, with this incredible obstetrician and the midwives taught me so much. And on the last day I was there, a, a woman allowed me to be there with her when she was giving birth. And I owe so much to her because I never, ever could have done it without her. And um, I watched her go through the hugest journey of surrender, of surrendering to, you know, she had no painkillers. So she was, a, she was an absolute agony, but she was relinquishing her, her thinking mind, you know, she just, her body took over the animal, like the most primal part of her did, you know, the natural intelligence was running the show and she, she was really surrendering and I saw someone surrender for seven hours. Wow. And I thought a lot afterwards about, it taught me so much about life generally. And I guess, Oh God, as actors, you're always trying to be present in the moment. And there's so many bits that, um, things that can take you in and out especially your own judgmental voice commenting on what you're doing or you know flubbing a line as you say or and and I guess I guess I sort of held her experience so so closely in my heart that when I started it I just thought I've just got to let I've just got to try and access the same thing she was you know and I watched her do and all her power and her you know it's it was like a, a really spiritual experience for me watching her and I tried to apply the same kind of uh, letting go, you know. And so, yeah. <laughs> How many takes do you estimate you did of the birthing scene? We did four the first day and two the second. Two and it was the very day. first day of filming. Mm. Oh, you're kidding. They got it out of the way right away. They did. And I was I was so pleased about that because I thought, oh, God, well, you know, if I have to be butt naked you know in a bath in front of the whole crew that I'd only just met um so be it and maybe it'll make everything else less scary um so in a way I was sort of quite gung-ho about that um but yeah we you Cornell's used the fourth take and there's like a few little mistakes in it I think at one point um Sean runs and gets the phone and can't find it and that was real the phone was left in the wrong room <laughs> you know and there's little things like that but um yeah I, I I don't know why he's the fourth one I haven't asked him that maybe it was the last one of the day and it's sometimes when you when you think even less because you're tired when you have to prepare for a- any kind of emotional scene um do you have <laughs> tricks isn't the right word I should say methods to sort of help you get in that headspace do you listen to music do you like to be alone um is there any kind of a process that helps you on those days Music definitely helps. It's a tool that I've started using. I don't know. I actually I started. To, I started using it on plays. In fact, Uncle Vanya, which you saw, I so loved that you saw that. Oh, yes. so funny. You know, when you do plays, like only about you know a couple of hundred people a night see it. It's um, yeah, it's one of those things that they just sort of. It's like transcends and off it goes, and no one, you know. So thank you. Um, but and I and between scenes to keep me in the zone you know if I had to come off stage and come back on I would use music or or especially before going on I would blast it right to the very last minute because it stopped me it, it helps my nerves it stops me like if it's just silence you know and you and you're building yourself up and 
there's a part of you that's going no what are you doing don't go out there you're crazy you know it's, you're just crazy what are you thinking um it's too scary uh but so I do that in between with emotional scenes for sure that that really helps uh, I also want to mention, uh, you're not just in like one great movie this year, you're also in The World to Come, which is a beautiful love story for Mona Fastfold, um, in which you're, uh, you share these wonderful scenes with Catherine Waterston. Um, this is a completely, well, maybe not completely different, but it's a very different movie because you're playing mid-19th century people living on the American East frontier and not the easiest times or conditions. Um, was that a challenging shoot as well? It was funny because I look back and I think, because I could have shot, shot them sort of back to back. I We were in Romania filming for the, the, the sort of summer section in August, September um, on World to Come. And I flew to New York to do some rehearsals and start doing my research. And then I flew back to finish the winter section and then went straight from there to Montreal wow. to start filming pieces. And we had the same editor, the amazing David Nyasko, who's just a genius, and Gemma Hoff, the makeup and hair designer who'd worked with me on The Crown. She designed both movies. So there were people in common. The directors also, Mona and Cornell, know each other really, really well um, and have done for years. And also they were both about um, exploring the, the loss of a child. And I, I did feel grateful that I was playing Tanny in The World to Come, who, you know, Catherine Waterston, who's just amazing, such a great friend, just unbelievable to work with and you know she's the one that loses the child and world to come and so it they were almost opposite characters mm. Tally is someone in the world to come who thinks so beyond the room that she's in you know her even though those women in those days which I didn't really truthfully know I, I actually felt feel ignorant about not knowing that not that long ago in 1860 women there and many women uh, had no choice about anything that they did with their time, let alone someone that they love. Yeah. And um, I felt really, I felt that that was such an untold story. That was such a voice that from the past that has been sort of forgotten. And we were really proud to be doing sort of telling it. And, but she was someone that really thought beyond those restrictions, beyond those boundaries and expectations and, and imagine far, far greater for her life. One of those people that kind of burned so brightly and has so much potential like Elena in Uncle Vanya or Masha and Three Sisters, you know, they always felt quite similar. And like Margaret, actually, in The Crown, who sort of thought beyond the, the the space and the society expectations or institution, you know. So it was lovely to, to, to play someone that thought so big. And then Martha, everything just turns in on herself, you know, her everything turns inward, her shame, her sense of guilt, her thoughts turn in on herself. And so it's an extremely sort of opposite uh, movement. Mm. Uh, they're both great films, very serious subject matter. Please tell me that when you finished, you went and did a big rom-com or something in Hawaii. I wish I could say that, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to be able to say that, but I literally finished pieces and I flew home on the 29th of January. And then a couple of weeks later, we were beginning to lock down and the pandemic oh. came, came through, through Italy and then, and then England. So actually, I had to really sit with the the feelings, I guess, Martha's feelings and that kind of whole sort of three month journey. I had to sit at home and let it leave in a way. I couldn't distract myself. I couldn't, you know, take my mind off things in a way. And, and it did take a while. It took a good couple of months to dissipate, I think. 
I'm always curious about that. Even when a, a shoot is over, if you, you know, if, if, if the, the, the final day they yell cut, if you can just leave your character at the door, if they, they take a while to sort of, you know, or if you have any sort of a process, like an exorcism, you know, to, to get them out of you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought about that during pieces actually, because like, for example, the birth, you know, having to have, I mean, a 20 minute reset and the props and everything and the prosthetics team and everyone sort everything out and uh, had to go back to the beginning as if it hadn't happened. And I thought about doing Streetcar Named Desire and how on afternoon shows, you know, which is one of the most harrowing pieces of writing ever. Um, and having to start, do an afternoon show, have an hour off and then go back to the beginning and do another three and a half hour show. Um, and I did that with Ben Foster and Gillian Anderson and we all sort of try to find ways to just shake it off, like play really loud music, literally dance around um you know and and on pieces it's the same at the end of the day I'd use music a lot or I know just the little things like having a lovely bath or chatting to my sister mm. and you know th those sorts of things that just ground you from it because yeah the definitely the lines are a bit blurred I think between your conscious mind and your psyche underneath that doesn't maybe know the difference between the two um, forgive me if this is inaccurate because I read it on the internet. So you never know if that's true. Um, Always. <laughs> but, uh, are you doing the next Mission Impossible films? I am. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's so great. I'm so glad your character mm -hmm. is back. She was such a delight. And are they, I know she is fun. Are they shooting like them back to back? It looks like they're doing two at once. Is that, I think they're having a bit of a break in between. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I only just, I've just done a little bit so far in December just a little bit but it was just such a pleasure to be able to be back on set and go oh my god wow you know I missed this and yeah. I I will never take a second of it for granted it's um yeah my sister's uh, an AD actually she's so she we've worked together a couple times it's so magical and she was the very first one back she did Jurassic World so they were filming in July and that gave me a lot of hope for the industry because it's it was you know like so many industries it was so strange to see it all just shut down yeah, it was, uh, you know, I think we were all in the same boat. So is this your first time back on a set since? Yeah, gosh, I guess. Oh, wow. Is it? Um, I've talked to some people who have done movies uh, with the new protocols. Um, is it strange or do you just sort of get used to it? You get used to it fairly quickly. And I saw my sister do it. So she sort of gave me the download every day. And it was just a bit of a miracle, really. Uh, as was Venice Film Festival, actually. That was the biggest miracle of everything. Sitting in the cinema with a group of people, which is like, you know, the, the thing that we all love so much. It was just amazing. It was so special. I spoke to a director who said it's it's very weird to try to give direction to actors from behind a mask and a face shield, mm -hmm. but everything becomes the new normal at a certain point. You get used to it. I mean, when... At Venice, for example, when at the end, you know, people were clapping and you sort of looked at everyone and everyone was in a face mask. It was a bit like a sci-fi movie, you know, and it was sort of so surreal. And it, it, yeah, a bit like an episode of Black Mirror. But you do, we're all, we're all in it, aren't we? And it's become new normal, I guess. We're nearly a year on. And here we are in lockdown. <sighs> Yeah, back in lockdown again, like as of today. <laughs> and uh, what are you looking forward to working on in, in the future? I mean, you have, you know, 
two Mission Impossible movies, so that's going to take up some time. But do you know what your next project is going to be? And and would you like to get back on stage? I don't know what I'm going to do next. I've read a lot of things, but nothing's felt right yet. Um, I'm really excited for when it does. I feel um, these two movies definitely changed me, or rather set a bit of a benchmark for me in the sense that even doing the birth, I think, has changed me because I remember at Venice, someone came up to me having seen the film and, and squeezed my arm and said, oh, thank you for the burps, and then ran off, you know, and I was like in a lift. I thought, what, what does she mean? And I said, oh, thanks, yeah. Uh, and then I thought about it a lot, and I thought, oh, maybe she's articulated something that I felt really adamant about, which was the woman I saw give birth, you know, felt really nauseous. She didn't burp, but she didn't feel well. And I knew that I sort of had to get into her experience in a way, which is the thing that I knew. And um, I sort of, so I, I sort of imagined that I felt really sick and then the burping kind of happened. I didn't think anything of it. But now I think I'm sort of almost proudest of that more than anything in the film, because that's a part of giving birth. And it's something that maybe is uncomfortable or a bit gross or, you know, not easy to watch. Um but it's a woman in all her kind of glory, really, in her most powerful moment. And it should reflect the spectrum of all of the human experience that it is, you know. And I guess it's the Gina Rollins thing of I I feel so sort of passionate about finding or creating parts where women are represented on screen in all their full colours, you know, and that they, it doesn't have to be, as I said, a sort of a, a filtered film version, maybe of a birth you know and it can be the real thing ish you know so that when someone like my sister watches it or you know I watch a film I always feel like I want to go oh god that's that's a bit like me or that reminds me of someone I know you know and I and and that's the thing that I really want to take care of and find and create and um and so that's my sort of intention and we we mentioned uh, uh, the Venice Film Festival earlier. I, I should have opened with this, but you won the Volpe Cup for Best Actress, um, one of the most prestigious awards, honestly, I think, in the world. Um, how do you find out that you know you've you've received that, and and what was sort of your initial reaction? Um, I was driving actually. I uh, I flew out to Venice the week before and pieces of a woman sort of premiered there on Saturday, which is already the most surreal thing in the world, especially considering like even in the lead up to Venice, I was just thought any minute the numbers could change. It's so unlikely we're going to get a physical edition. And minute by minute, it was okay. And it was so safe and it went so smoothly. And I was so honoured to be there in something that went so well. And, you know, it was so about, even more about cinema, I felt than ever, everyone said. And so pieces happened. And then, and the world to come was the next night so that was already completely <laughs> wild for me uh, and I yeah and it was just so special and then I flew home uh, I think the day after a couple of days after and then I got a phone call from someone on my team Luke who said oh they want you to fly back um I don't know what that means but I think you know and I just was completely speechless and then I put down the phone and I started crying because um just even that gesture felt like maybe the film was winning something or I didn't really know um and it was a bit of a 
haze really and I just remember Kate Blanchett handing it to me and me looking at her and I've always loved her and then I sort of stood there with with this this th- holding this thing thinking oh my god so many of my heroes have stood in this position before and I just thought I will never forget this moment and I will never ever take it for granted and I'll try to do my best in finding the things that mean a lot like to me like like pieces of a woman those are all the things that went through my head um silly question as sentimental as that is <laughs> no <laughs> um where do you keep the trophy it's where is it now um it's so massive it's really hard it's, to hold actually and um when you're sort of thanking people and you're standing on the stage you have to hold it with one hand and it sort of started my biceps started shaking <laughs> and it also clangs a bit like a cowbell if you're not careful so that was clanging through my speech and I was just trying to keep my voice not being so shaky but um uh I think it's in my bedroom but it's in its case so you can't see it it's sort of like and sometimes I look over at it and I think I don't know it's on the floor somewhere I don't I don't know where you put it really Helen Burstein has her awards, like she has a room and she's just full of them. I never forget walking to her house being like, oh my God. (laughs) If you didn't know she was formidable, you certainly know now. She's amazing. I wonder about that because Ellen Burstyn plays your mother in the film and you're so spectacular together. And obviously you've you've worked with a lot of amazing actors, but she's Ellen Burstyn. I mean, do you ever have a moment on set where you're kind of like, Mm. oh my God, you know? I've had that a lot in my life is the thing, you know, like even Anthony Hopkins, I was like, oh my God. and it's really hard to concentrate in scenes because you keep getting taken out because you're a little bit starstruck um, and completely with her. And the thing that helped most was she did this amazing thing where she said, honey, do you want to come for a sleepover? She went, let's have a pajama party. And I went, I would love that. And so I did. We had a pajama party. We stayed up till 3 a.m., we talked all night. She cooked me dinner. We were in our pajamas. We got up early, went for a walk. It was very sweet. And so that helped take the edge off a little bit. You had a pajama party with Ellen Burstyn? This is amazing. Mm. Mm. <laughs> okay, I want to see a movie about that. If you guys could could get on that, that would be awesome. A bunch of pandemic friendly. Maybe we could work it out. <laughs> it would be pretty easy just us to do pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to remind everyone that the movie is now on Netflix. Um, and I'm so pleased because I really feel like everyone will be able to see it. Um, they are definitely uh, uh, gone are the days of sending copies of Finding Nemo to people. Um, everyone can watch I it know. over and over Isn't it again. amazing? I love that. Yeah, I, I feel so proud that this movie is Netflix. I still can't quite believe it. And you're right. You were right to say it's a small movie because it is. It was, you know, it was. It was a really small budget. And I remember thinking, you know, it it was Sam and Ashley's first thing and Kevin Turin thing they produced under their production company, the very first film, Little Lamb Productions. And I remember thinking, God, you guys, this is so cool that you are investing money in a tiny movie about a woman who loses a baby. And a few years ago, that never, ever would have happened. I just know it. To, To risk money and to do it. And then so for Netflix to, to welcome it and take it and, and, really champion and support this this female story I I'm it was out this morning and I, I'm sort of it's felt a bit like Christmas Day you know it's one of those things where you go oh something that's so special might be seen by a few more people other than my mom and granny 
That's Vanessa Kirby, star of Pieces of a Woman, which is now streaming on Netflix. Kirby's other project, The World to Come, is set to be released on February 12th. Sound of Metal stars Riz Ahmed as Ruben Stone, a drummer and recovering junkie who begins to struggle with hearing loss and learns a new way of living in a deaf community. Ruben eventually finds a small deaf commune in the country overseen by Joe, a Vietnam veteran played by Paul Racy, who teaches Ruben to accept his deafness. A character actor seen on shows such as Parks and Recreation and Baskets, Racy was raised as the hearing son of deaf parents and knows American Sign Language. Variety's Clayton Davis recently talked to Racy, who just won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor. They talked about how Racy was having his big moment at age 72. Way back when, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that I'd won the best breakthrough performance. <laughs> what? But interestingly enough, yeah, I mean, you don't need any, you don't have to be a certain age to be an actor because life is life. Uh, but when I was, it's, it's funny when um, I, I got into this uh, spiritual, universal spirituality church out here uh, and became a practitioner there. I started studying religious philosophies and I used to pray with people a lot because I did a lot of addiction ministry stuff. You know, one of the prayers that I would say, I'd have this line in my head that I wanted to use is that, uh, you're in the middle of this reverie. You're trying to just pray really hard. And it's, you know, it's never too late and it's never too bad. I heard a practitioner say that 30 years ago and it stuck with me. It's never too late. It's never too bad. God is always on the field. And if you believe what Joe believes that the kingdom of God is right here, not out there, that prayer made sense. And I would say it to myself every day in my meditations, it's never too late. It's never too bad. Uh, and so at the age of 72, I had forgotten that line for the past, I think, five or six years. I don't think I even said it to myself, even out there uh, in Boston where we filmed this thing. And then it started to reoccur to me in my mind. It's never too late, Paul. It really is never too late. It's never too bad. And my wife is my wife is so full of so much positivity. I just... Sometimes you want to go, shut up, would you? With the, yeah, yeah, I want a little bit of realism here, you know, but she's, she's like this, this uh, buoyant, overflowing with, with uh, positivity. And I'm more of the, uh, you know, Chicago streets guy. Like, Come on, give me a break, whatever, you know. But I must say that I look back at that. I, I, I kind of ironically uh, laugh at it. It's never too late. It's never too bad. Oh, my God, it's happening. It is never too late. And I don't feel old. I feel, you know, I'm in a rock and roll band. I love playing nightclubs. I'm missing it so bad. But man, oh man, if I could just, if people could just climb onto that, I don't care how old you are. And I don't care how bad your situation is. If you can just keep moving forward to that thing, you know, when they come and go, hey, Paul, I got a one-liner for you. Here you go. Here's the carrot. All right. Who knows what that's going to lead to, you know? But it's, it really happened. It's really happened. And I know when this pandemic thing is over, there's a lot more good coming to me. I feel it. I can, I'm, I'm riding that wave of good. If only I could have uh, stuck with it. Well, I, you know, I keep saying, if only I would have been this more positive uh, when I was in my 40s. But that, that's really not true. You can't really judge another man's journey or 
give any advice to somebody who's going to continue to fall down that drug path or whatever that drug path is. When you're ready, you're ready. So, uh, and I think I've said this to you specifically because we've met so many times now. Uh, this is the way it had to happen. Uh, it couldn't have happened. You know, you can't dictate to God, whatever that God is for you, when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. Because God will just look at you and go, dude, you're wrong. That's not the way it's going to happen. So uh, that's been, God, I, I'm so tired of learning lessons along the way. But man, you know, like, yeah. or starting over. Well, I guess I'm not tired of it because look what happened here. So I'm grateful. If this is the way it had to happen, what more of a perfect path could it be? Listen, Clayton, when I graduated from the University of Illinois, I had an acting professor there, Bill Raffeld, and I went to meet with him. And I said, uh, Bill, what's next for me? Because I went from being a, a one-line guy in, in Romeo and Juliet. I had one line, and I graduated four years later doing Mac the Knife. So I really excelled in my program, you know. And I meet with my acting professor in his little tiny office. And I'm like, what's next for me, you know? And he, and he says to me, Clayton, he goes, Paul, I don't know that you're going to have a lot of success as a young man. I, I, I feel, I'm feeling that you're going to get success much later in life. I said, what are you talking about? That's very disappointing to hear. He goes, no, I, I feel you may be an older man when your success comes. Can you believe that? He said that to me. No way. Yeah, he did. I never forgot it. I said, well, what should I do? He goes, well, I feel you should go to Second City. I'm living in Chicago, Second City, renowned improvisation center. So I did. I went there and I, I went to that program, a two-year program of learning how to improv. I joined an improvisation group. I got very fast in learning how to improv on stage. Well, my goal was to be on the second stage theater. Didn't happen. Okay. But then, and I would, I, that, that, that line always burned in my mind about, you're not going to have a lot of success until you're an older man. Here I am, 72. And Bill, Bill just died last year. So I can't even call Bill. But, I mean, he's with me. But he said that to me. And God damn, how right could a man be? He he knew that 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 was that was he he knew at that point like that that that's that's that I got goosebumps that's like chilling. but that is that's a true story yeah so now here this happens and Bill just passed away and I think about him all the time now I just wow Bill felt how the hell did you know that was going to happen or he was just it was a feeling that he had yeah should have asked him about lotto numbers too, man. Like you, I, you, 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 you utilize some his full potential. He Woo. called it. He called yeah. it. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I, I, we do a nice little round, a uh, little lightning round kind of questions. Uh, and you, you were starting a little bit on this. These are lighter, cool stuff, like favorite movies and things like that. Uh, so you talked about, so if I ask you your favorite Western, I think you're going to say the searchers. So I think oh, it's, it's by, by far the searchers. Yeah. Uh, as a young boy, uh, it struck me, you know, I know John Wayne's not uh, politically cruel these days, you know, they want to change the name of the airport and everything. But anyway, look, the guy that put that movie together, I think it's, uh, is it Ford? Uh, I forget. John the Ford. Yeah. John Ford. Yeah. Such a great 
I, that's another one that I can watch and just get very, very emotional about. And the other one, of course, I don't know if I told you when I saw Love Me Tender. No. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, in 1956, my mom uh, knew that I loved Elvis Presley because you watch him on uh, Ed Sullivan. In 1956, he made Love Me Tender. And it came out and there was a movie theater about a block away from our house in, uh, in Chicago, in Humboldt Park. My mom says, let's go see this movie. Well, that theater, I used to go there and pay 25 cents to watch cartoons all day long. They had them running around all day long. But now my mom's taking me to this movie theater to see Love Me Tender, adult theme. Like, oh, my God. So we, we walked to the movie theater. Well, my there was no closed captioning. There's no captioning in the, at the time. So... We're watching the movie. She's sitting right here. We're watching the screen. And I have to crane my neck to interpret every character in that movie for my mom. So she knew what was going on. I'm telling her, here's what this guy said. Here's what Elvis just said. Then he sings, love me tender. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, that walk home that night, me and my mom were so close. I acted out every part in that movie for her. I interpreted the whole movie. She was thrilled. Then, my then you know you're watching black and white television. Uh, my dad was stone deaf, deaf as a post. I'm interpreting Bonanza, you know, paw, hoss, uh, at, you know, the uh, little Joe. I'm interpreting uh, all the characters in that for my dad, the fugitive with David Jansen with the one-armed man. Yeah. So those those times once or twice a week that I'd get together and be in front of the television and feeding the lions to my dad. My dad's like, oh my God, this is great. I thought, cause he, he'd be watching television, just watching it, talking heads, no captioning, just kind of making up the script in his head. Like, dad, what do you think the guy just said to him? I have no idea, but for me to be that conduit, so I think that's where I really started getting, hey, acting's kind of a cool thing. You get to be somebody else. You get to get some emotion in there. The times I interpreted for my dad, those TV shows, are the, some of the most beautiful memories that I have of getting him to understand what the, what the full circle of the story was, especially Bonanza, especially The Fugitive. Very valuable to me. Very valuable. But, oh, that, but that's definitely where I first learned... Uh, how you can uh, uh, convey uh, maybe a, a didactic story somehow that, and have a, an experience. The only way my dad and mom would have that experience would be at the deaf club, where you had deaf actors portraying things. Otherwise, the hearing culture, pop culture is lost on them. That's why my mom, it was so important for her to see Elvis in this pop moment, because she remembered Frank Sinatra coming to the Chicago theater. And the, the clamor of, oh, you know, my God, it's Frank Sinatra. But she couldn't hear it. So she, I could connect her. You know, she sent me to my first Beatle concert. When I got home from the Beatle concert that was at Comiskey Park in Chicago, she was waiting for me. I drove two of my girlfriends in high school uh, to see it in my mom's Volkswagen. Then came home and my mom's waiting. So how was it? How did it go? And she's sitting on my, on my bed in my bedroom, and I'm telling mom, you'll never believe how this went down. Both of us, tears streaming on our face, talking about these four guys that just transformed my life. And I'm telling my mom, like, uh, yeah, uh, when they left, 
they drove them out to center field from second base. And the smell of puke was everywhere because everybody was throwing up and there were medics everywhere. My girlfriends are, they're like vomiting and I'm crying and I'm telling my mom, my mom was like totally in it. Really? Then what happened? Then what happened? And what songs did they do? She didn't know what song, but I explained it. Well, I, cause I wrote the set out. I said, uh, well, they went from this song to this song. I had the album Beatles 65 and I'm explaining her what this song is about that. Then they did I'm down. And she's like, yeah, yeah. God, she was just so hungry for that experience. And so I just gave it to her. But so you can imagine how being an interpreter and letting somebody know who's deaf, what's going on. And they're like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me more. The world's changed since then. There's closed captioning. I was, I was, I was, when, when did closed captioning come? I, I'm really... Not like, until the 80s, late 80s. Same thing with, uh, yeah, I, well, maybe not until the 90s. Were, were, your no. parent, were your parents already gone by then or they were still here? Uh, they left us about 15 years ago. So, uh, yeah, so there's, there's, I, I don't want to say the 80s. I think it's in the 90s or even beyond that where it became an easy thing for people to get access to. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like my heart filled. That's like a beautiful story about just like, just I, I, people will only pray for like memories like that with their, with their parents. That's, that's, that's beautiful, Paul. Um, uh, so we went to Western. Uh, favorite horror movie. What, what's, what scares Paul Racy? Oh, what scared me? Because uh, I used to watch shock theater on uh, Chicago television, black and white, Frankenstein, The Werewolf, Bella Lugosi. Those are the movies that scared the hell out of me. That Frankenstein thing uh, was hard. Because by that time, sometimes my mom and dad would go to the deaf club alone. I mean, thank God I can stay home and just do what I want because I had to babysit my two brothers and sister. So I'd have shock theater on. And Frankenstein, uh, I know it sounds crazy, but that scene where he uh, drowns a little girl and then he dies in the fire, that actually scared the hell out of me. And I had to watch it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> would love to see you act that out for your family. It would have been really, really interesting. Right, right. The oh. old King Kong, the old King Kong movie mm, with the yeah. stupid, uh, uh, whatever they call that. Uh, animatronics. Yeah. Animatronics, yeah. yes. Yeah. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, what's the movie that makes you laugh till you cry? Oh, I laugh till I cry. I love the Marx Brothers. And... Uh, when uh i like uh my favorite one it's the mad 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 world yeah, love good. that one great. Oh, anything great. with the marx brothers yeah used to love that what director right now if they knocked on your door and said paul come with me we're making a movie would you say absolutely yes to oh i say this out loud all the time scorsese call me i'm gonna text him for you he like he, he like you would you fit so well into his world it would be incredible Anything that goes along with that kind of world, there, yeah, there I am. I'm right there. What's your favorite Scorsese movie? Ooh, this is good. Oh, jeez. Oh, pick one. Uh, all right, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. All right, safe. Yeah, good. Uh, good yeah, one. but but the last one, the one that was uh, the very last one, the, the one that's like five hours. Yeah, I, yeah. That that thing. When I watched that, I'm like, damn it, damn it. Like, I wish I could have I I played it. <laughs> oh, any role in there. <laughs> We're gonna make we're gonna make we're gonna get Paul Racy hooked up with Martin Scorsese. Uh, and uh, last question for you, and I have to give you the opportunity, Riz, Olivia, Darius, family that uh, I've seen it. I've seen you guys together. It's a family that 
I don't see very often when I see castmates and filmmakers, uh, like there's love there. Uh, the experience wrapped up in one kind of sentence. Well, how, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, family. Uh, well, I, all I know is that um, I felt so good from the moment I read the script, to the moment I arrived at that set, to the moment we were working together. Even Olivia and I, we had more scenes that have been now on the cutting room floor. She's such a great person. We had such a great connection. I can't even explain. Uh, I, I knew when I went back to my hotel room at night, I was feeling my, my mother and my father's presence in the room, just trying to be in the stillness with that. I knew that some important work was being done. I'm, I'm a theater actor, okay? It takes me four to six weeks to get into a character and to really get ready for your opening night. And then, and then after opening night, that's when the character really starts growing. I know how that process works. But for Darius and the cast of this show, I have been in the process of becoming Joe for 40 years, okay? All those experiences in deaf sober houses, in deaf programs, working with deaf people, being with them, working in the court system. That's been my acting process for 40 years. So I, when I hit that, that set, I was ready to go. There was no process to get through. Let's now let's get who let's do some exercises. We were ready to go. And Riz too. Riz and I didn't become immediate friends right away. We got to know each other as the set, as the film was unfolding, as the filming was unfolding. And by the time we hit our last scene, we knew each other and we were saying goodbye. I can't think of a, a more perfect process to go through. And, and the, like I say, the proof is in the pudding. All that shit is on that screen is for real, man. It's for real. That's Paul Racy from the film Sound of Metal, now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to Variety.com and click on the Awards Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions in key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tankay, Clayton Davis, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley. We'll see you on the circuit.